Hello and a very warm welcome to a new episode of World Build, brought to you by World Architecture News from Alison and Nav. episode, we speak to Nancy Ruddy, one of the founding principals at Centra Ruddy Architecture, about adaptive reuse, the importance of listening when designing globally, and the future of cities post-COVID. Nancy is actively engaged in design education. She's a member of New York Public Library's Real Estate Council and has served as a board member for the National Association of Women Business Owners. She has received the Career Achievement Award at the School of Architecture at the City College of New York and has been inducted into the Interior Design Hall of Fame. Before we begin, though, we would just like to remind you that this year's WAN Awards and WIN Awards are open for entries. They recognise the outstanding works of visionary architects and designers worldwide and to highlight the extraordinary architectural projects that are putting the planet's needs first, we've launched four new environmentally focused categories. Entries will be reviewed and judged by a top-level international jury and all the details you need can be found in the description for this episode. The standard deadline is the 20th of May and the final deadline is the 4th of June. So Nancy, welcome today to the podcast. I'd really like to start right at the beginning. What inspired you or what made you want to set up your own practice? Well, I had been in the business, um, you know, out, out of school for about nine years. And I always knew that eventually I, I would want to have my own firm. And when I started out in architecture, architecture was very corporate and it was very male dominated, very hierarchical. And, and it was really, you know, coming out of a time when architecture was a profession of privilege. And, and you've always been a staunch supporter of women. And as such, 52% of your company's current workforce are female. That sounds to me like a high percentage for a sector like architecture. Yes, yes, um, it, it is high. Um, I think that even though uh, supposedly about 50% of graduates today are women, women in the workforce of architecture is a little over 30%. I think a lot of, uh, a lot of young architects feel they have to make a decision between working in an architectural firm, which is very demanding and very long hours, and working for a public agency or a development company where your hours um, are, are a little more um, in line with having to raise children or be a caretaker or whatever. So, yeah, so it, so it is unusual. And, and we um, take great pride, you know, both male and female partners uh, and principals in the firm um, of mentoring men and women. Uh, I have a particular interest in uh, mentoring women to get a seat at the table. So, and, and what happens is many women, in order to move quickly through um, the ranks of architects, architectural firms, they start their own businesses. So, so the amount of businesses that are owned or have women as partners that are larger than, you know, 20 or 50 people is under 10%. So I, I think it's a very interesting statistic. I think a strong sense of believing in yourself and what you have to offer is really crucial in business. Did you have a moment when you could see that your business was going to be successful? Well, I, I think that, that, you know, there's a few things that I have always 
had great self-confidence because I had a mother who basically told me that, you know, there's nobody like me in the world. And uh, it gave me a great self-confidence. And so I did not have any roadblocks, quite honestly. The the biggest roadblock was the lack of um, having buildings that had come out of the ground. I had done it at other people's firms, but had not done it at my own firm. And basically, when we we went to um, people who knew us, who, who knew the kind of you know service and design that I could perform, um, they basically said, "Just get one building out of the ground, and we'll give you a project." And so, so the biggest challenge was getting that first building out of the ground, and um, came through. Um, really being out there, connecting with people who knew us really was, was the, really the greatest asset. Whether it was a developer, a school, um, a client, someone who had worked with us, and we did get a, um, a small nine-story building in, in Manhattan in New York. And um, the minute it started coming out of the ground, Um, I went back to everyone I had talked to and we started getting work. And so there were really um, no challenges. You know, it was it was keeping focused on what we felt was important uh, in architecture. And um, so, you know, the only um, difficulties were we started our practice in uh, 1987 and 1989 to 1992 was the biggest recession we had ever lived through as adults. And so, um, whereas I was trained on doing a lot of, you know, ground up construction, uh, nobody was doing uh, that sort of work. So we focused on um, adaptive reuse and uh, looking at historic buildings and, and figuring out how to reimagine them. And it not only supported us and brought in work, but it exposed us to a part part of the practice that we really loved of taking historic buildings and um, reimagining them and turning them from commercial to residential or commercial to uh, museum. And so right now that is about 50% of our practice and has been over the last 34 years. So word of mouth played a really important part of growing your business. Do do you think that's the same now? Do you think things have changed? Are are you getting your work through social media, exposure, or is word of mouth still crucial? How important too are award schemes in showcasing your work and getting more work coming through? I think it's such an interesting question, uh, Alison. And the the reality is, is we um, win a lot of awards, both you know, locally and nationally and internationally. And it, 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 it's very exciting because it is a recognition of the work you do. But I do believe that there are many projects that do not get awards that are equally um, important. And, and I think just like any uh, awards or competition, it's not always the best that win or there are many bests So, yes, it's a great thing to be able to say, but I think what's more important is really being focused on what is important in architecture. You know, 
what is um, the content? Who is the user? Um, what is beauty? And in terms of your global work, you've, you've worked in many different destinations, including Saudi Arabia and India. How do you start your research for projects that are based not in an area that you're familiar with? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a really good question. And my initial answer is that the research is very similar to when you're researching a project in your hometown. I, I think the first, um, the first thing is listening, listening to the client, listening to the environment, listening to the context, and then immersing yourself um, in uh, the traditions of that area, even in order to design very forward-thinking um, buildings, it's very important to understand uh, the culture. So in, in our international work in, in Saudi Arabia and in India, where we've built um, two and a half schools, um, we, we do a lot of research. We spend a lot of time on site. Our, our first building in India, we spent six months coming back and forth uh, and seeing, um, it was a K through 12 school, um, seeing every K through 12 school that was really working really well in India and then seeing those that were not working well and talking to educators, not just our client, um, but really learning about the culture and you know, using our, our experience in India as an example is that we really focused on the environment and uh, it was in an, an area called Taruvala in uh, Kerala. And there's a lot of backwater, a lot, a lot of um, beautiful vegetation. And we really studied that to determine um, how the built environment interacts successfully uh, with that environment. And, and the first school that, that we did took its cues from tiny river boats that go along the backwaters um, of Kerala. And they have double roofs because of the, you know, the heat of the sun and um, interesting uh, net-like structures that withstand monsoon. And so our building, which was concrete and steel and you know, other beautiful materials, um, had a double roof and um, had, you know, sort of patterns of um, that we found in traditional Indian architecture and then taking it the next step. So it, it's always an amazing journey. And again, the idea is not coming in with a Western thought um, uh, and, and plunking it down and, and doing a building of the of the neighborhood and of the country. And um, it's interesting, in India, um, they have uh, a comparable uh, thought system to um, called Vasdu. Um, it's like Feng Shui. And we, we sat and we studied with uh, Vasdu um, masters to learn about, you know, the, the concepts of how that's done. And, and we did similar things in Saudi Arabia. We've worked in England and all over the world. So I think the thing is being humble and understanding that you're coming into a different culture and you want to learn that and you want to do a building that is respectful of the history of that country and um, and where the country wants to go to help them take it forward. So it's really not a matter of imposing what you think they should have, but listening from the ground up to get things right. Thanks very much for sharing those thoughts. You clearly like challenges. Do you move on quickly to the next one when you finish a build? 
it's like impossible for me to let go. We, after a building is finished, um, we always stay in touch with our clients and uh, we come back for learning about what has worked and what has not worked. And um, so it's very hard for me to let go because, you know, on a, any given project, you can work, be working on it for three years or six years and you get to know people and you develop bonds and, and you're building is like your child. And, and so there's, there are literally no clients, uh, I want to say, that I don't have contact with, you know, over the years. So Nancy, I just wanted to bring the conversation back to when you and Alison were discussing adaptive reuse. You mentioned that you'd converted a commercial building into a residential one. And with these post-COVID cities emerging, are you seeing quite a large emphasis on commercial buildings moving to becoming residential? And do you think that maybe with people working from home, companies are realising that there isn't as much necessity for these large office spaces? I am a believer that um, we will need offices. I, I, I really believe that our work life and our work week will change um, because I think that we have all found that there are certain things we can do very well uh, while working remotely and there are other things that are harder to do. I mean, we're, we're even experiencing that with our own firm. You know, there's things that are fine to do at your computer or on a Zoom, or, um, but there's nothing like sitting around a table and collaborating or looking at materials. So I think it will be a hybrid. And so um, I think people may shrink their office space and um, there are buildings, you know, like in the hospitality industry and um, commercial buildings that, you know, will we'll need to be um, uh, reimagined. And um, there's, there's a lot of challenges. I don't know if you want to talk about that separately, but, you know, the, big, the biggest challenge in converting a commercial building to residential is that the floor plates are much deeper. Typically in a residential building, one wants to be um, you know, no further than uh, 30 feet, let's say um, 10 meters away um, from windows. And so the, you know, the challenge is how, how you plan out a building to keep um, living spaces close to natural light and ventilation. And what are some of the other things you need to consider when you're converting these buildings, as well as natural lighting and floor plates? One of the other challenges is the fenestration or window, you know, the window patterns are very different in office space than in residential. And um, so whether it's a historic building um, that has small punched openings as windows or modern office buildings, modern, I'm saying, you know, uh, post 1920, 1930 that have floor to ceiling glass and um edge-to-edge windows, um, how do you get the partitions uh, into, you know, bedroom sizes and uh, demising partitions between between apartments? So I, I think that there's a lot of challenges of, of how to make use of these deeper floor plates. We, we've done that with having uh, shared uh, recreational spaces in the inner part of the core or laundry, you know, uh, spaces and storage spaces. Those deep inner spaces are optimal um, locations for remote offices, for remote learning 
um, for, for school-aged children. Uh, they're, they're great spaces for, you know, workout or, you know, for the variety of things that have had to happen uh, within our homes over the last 15 months. So, so those are some of the challenges. But the, the advantages are the greatest part because these, these commercial buildings have much higher ceiling heights than um, new built residential buildings. And um, there are, you know, amazing architectural details and spaces that can become amenity spaces like old banks where, you know, your amenity lounge or your um, remote working, you know, communal space can have beautiful detailing that one might not be able to afford. The fact that, that buildings can be adapted and reimagined and not raised to the ground, I think is a great asset on every single front. And what are some of the other changes and trends that you're seeing emerging in architecture and interior design as a result of the pandemic? Well, I I think there's a lot of things. And and one hopes that we as society can take advantage of like the lessons learned, you know, during a crisis. And I know that there's a a lot of things we have been focusing on in in our practice that... um, are really very valuable um, in that we have always um, seen the importance of indoor-outdoor connectivity and biophilic design. And um, I think that with the pandemic, people are seeing that, um, you know, more operable windows, more um, uh, cross-ventilation, and the idea of, I think, we as a nation have really focused on the health and well-being of people who are in our buildings. We, we as, as a practice, have always been concerned. But this idea that now the development community and schools and, you know, every, and, and even office buildings are starting to look at not just the physical well-being, but the mental well-being. We're looking at, a, you know, a resident in a residential building holistically, you know, and so the idea of expanded amenity spaces um, to be able to have working spaces where if you're only going into the office three days a week, where you can um, leave your apartment but stay within the building and have great places to work. So th- I think there's a lot of things that we are going to learn. And um, and the other really exciting thing that, that we're seeing is that people in thinking that they may not have to work within a dense urban city, you know, five days a week, are looking at alternatives of places to live um, that are more outside of the city. And people are feeling, well, maybe I can live a little bit further out so, and have a, you know, a commute that's 15 minutes longer, but then I can, you know, have more space, more, more access to the outdoors. And so we're working on a number of projects where we're, uh, that are suburban in nature, but they're not the single family house. And um, uh, the last generation, which is our generation of uh, denser housing in suburbia were modeled on um, dense urban areas. So they're called TODs, transit-oriented design, which are really quite brilliant. You know, they're, they're, they have developed around uh, transit for people going into a city, but they were modeled on the density of uh, dense cities uh, with tall buildings. So 
I really believe that a future is developing mid and low rise communities that are within commuting distance of our big cities. And we're working on a couple of those right now. And I think it's very exciting, really exciting, because people who are living outside the city still want the activation and the vitality of culture and uh, cafes and, and great activities and uh, being with other people. And um, so I think it's a really exciting next step that we're going to be seeing. Right. I completely agree. I think with the pandemic, a lot of people have realized the importance of having access to outdoor space. I know it's something that I've realized as well. What advice would you give to a young architect looking to progress and move forward in their career? The greatest advice I can give young architects is that you need to have a passion for architecture and and design, because if you don't, it's not the right profession for you. But assuming that, that, that you've selected that, I think the thing that is almost most important, there's a few things. One is to be proactive, to grab opportunities and to, um, develop relationships with, um, mentors, you know, within your firm and really make it clear that you want to grow, that you want responsibility and um, you're willing to take a challenge. Another thing is to take chances. You know, we, we all learn from, I don't want to call them failures, but we all learn from, from things that, that, you know, might've been a good idea, but you know, do not have um, the legs to, to, to really become a building. So I think take chances because that's where brilliant ideas come from. Um, I would also say to constantly be learning, constantly explore, and and to travel and see buildings. I mean, I think we have become a society where people feel if you see something online that you've, you've seen it. But the amazing thing about architecture is it's about it's about experience. It's about proportion. It's about walking through spaces and, and the sounds you hear and um, being able to be intimate with the details. So I really encourage that. And we have a uh, annual traveling fellowship um, that for our our team where people submit proposals on what they would do for two weeks in any location in the world that we pay for. So I think seeing things um, and ask a lot of questions. No one thinks that, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're not wise. I mean, the wise people do ask questions and, um, and then you can develop dialogues with people with experience and, um, and have authenticity get into the, the content and focus on the importance of what you're, what you're doing and, and what your client needs are. And, um, and then fly, fly. So, and that's what's wonderful about what we do. And finally, what would you say is your biggest achievement to date? Architecturally, it's, it's about the kind of firm that I have created. Um, I, we, we've done a lot of important buildings and beautiful spaces, but We've created a firm that really encourages development and um, of one's personal goals. And, and we, our firm is also very family-oriented. We understand that in order to be creative and inspirational, you, you have a personal life. And whether it's a family or loving to paint or whatever it is that, that we like to nurture 
the whole person in our firm. And so we, we've developed um, a firm where people stay a long time. People grow from being interns to associates and principals. And um, so that's the greatest achievement in architecture. And it, it's an amazing safe haven for people who want to think and to grow, but also really want to to explore the next chapter. Thank you very much indeed, Nancy. Really, really enjoyable chat this afternoon. Um, So thank you for being so honest. And thank you for the great questions. They really made me soul search. And so I really enjoyed it as well. We welcome your feedback on the podcast. So please aim all your comments to waneditorial at haymarket.com. You can listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. So follow, download and join us.